from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how Iceland makes circularity look effortless, why shareholder biodiversity proposals are an unnatural act, companies net zero disconnect, and Boston Metal's quest for sustainable steel. We're testing our metal this week on 350. It's June 2nd, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Viz 350. So glad to have you with us. Heather is off this week, but joining me from Ashland, Oregon, is Green Viz Vice President for Energy, Sarah Golden. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Joel. I'm so happy to be on the podcast with you. Well, it's so great to have you here. Uh, and uh, you're up visiting family up in Ashland? Yeah, I'm from Southern Oregon, Ashland. And so I'm with my family this week for the, the, short, the short holiday week. Yeah. Um, so for people who don't know Sarah Golden, uh, talk a little bit about what you do and some of the projects you've got going on. Sure. So I head up our energy program at Green Biz, which means that I lend a hand across our events and also on our editorial side when it comes to energy content. The primary thing that I focus on is Verge, our largest event, which is in October in San Jose. And I help out with the energy program there and also help with some partnerships, including the one that we have with the Clean Energy Buyers Association, SEBA, which hosts the major energy buyers, the major corporations that are buying clean energy and tries to figure out more ways to accelerate the adoption of clean energy. You keep saying you help with, and I think that's a little bit underplaying your critical role in this critical topic. Um, but uh, and then and then we have uh, up in almost even north of you next week. Uh, we'll we'll be together for Circularity Twenty Three, uh, our Circular Economy Conference. What's your role there? Yeah, I love circularity. It's one of those topics that I just think makes such so much sense and is emblematic of the transformational nature we need in order to be addressing the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. I'm going to be moderating a session there that is about circular deconstruction, which is within the the built environment. How do we create thoughtful policies so that when we are creating buildings, they're done in ways that they can be deconstructed at the end of their life? Or how can we be deconstructing buildings right now that need to come down in order to reuse some of the materials that are there? Right now, the construction industry, there's a lot of waste there. And then at the same time, we're building a lot of things and we need to be matching up these two ends better. Are you going to be doing anything at Circularity? I am. First of all, that's, that's a great session. We're looking forward to deconstructing that session uh, uh, eventually. The um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm hosting a, a three-hour tutorial in the run-up on Monday morning. Uh, uh, that's sort of a miniature version of the Comms Summit that uh, I, I I did, and along with uh, Dylan Siegler uh, at GreenBiz 23. So we're bringing a bunch of communicators and sustainability people together to talk about how do you talk about <laughs> circular economy. It's it's really interesting, Sarah. I found a a, a research paper online where they had found 114 different definitions of circular economy. Let me repeat that. 114 different ways to describe in a sentence or two what circular economy is. 
that's a problem um, it, you know, because most people already think of it as just recycling and it's a lot more than that. Uh, so um, that's one of the things I'm going to be doing there. But I have a question for you about circularity as it relates to energy. It seems that we're we're spending a lot of time talking about the material flows, like like your session on on deconstructing buildings. There is an incredible energy intensity to all of these materials. Do you think we're talking about that piece of it enough? I think that that is a rising element that we're talking about. I think that if you break uh, emissions down to their most basic elements, we're often talking about energy. And increasingly, organizations, as they're looking at their scope three emissions and emissions within their value chain, are turning to energy as a way to be reaching the deep decarbonization because so much of the emissions embodied within materials come from the energy used to create them. So it's sort of the the common denominator that we can be looking at. And then the good news is that we have a lot of clean energy technologies available right now. So there's actually plans of action that we can be taking. And I'm curious, after you just explained everything with the Comm Summit, uh, what definition do you use for circularity now? Well, I've long had this four-word definition of circular economy, which is keeping molecules in play. Um, and, you know, I know some people, I know, I, I use that a number of times at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, uh, and they they sort of, you know, smirk, and they, I don't know that they love that, and, and some people, others don't. But to me, it, it, it's, in terms of communicating this to others, it speaks to, uh, I think in the simplest way, because you keep molecules in play, obviously by recycling them and and, and turning them back into to new materials, but also uh, product longevity, keeping things in you know through repair and reuse and upgrade and fixing things uh, through through uh, material uh, material utilization or product utilization, the sharing economy, or just having getting more out of every molecule, um, and and. Even the the use of bio-based uh, materials and molecules, if you will, that go into these things that can be safely returned back into the soil or the water or even the air. So I think for me, four words uh, says it, but that's not enough, enough for academics. It's not enough for uh, probably you know contracts and, and other legal kinds of things, but it does to me say what needs to be said. I like it. Simple. Yeah. Well, sometimes simple is best, sometimes not. But in this case, I think it is. But enough with that simplicity. Let's simply go over to the Week in Review. And we're going to start, Sarah, with appropriately something that you wrote about Iceland and uh, industrial ecology. And uh, I think that came from a trip you took over there. Uh, Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, so this is a piece that I wrote um, in thinking about circularity next week. So I think of this as truly an overlap between energy and circularity. Last year, I visited Iceland, and I was going there to look at their clean energy technologies and all the interesting things that they're doing with climate tech. One of the places we went was to an organization called HS Orca, and that's a private energy company, and it runs the country's third largest geothermal plant. And Iceland's geothermal is just incredible. 
I everyone should check out documentaries on this. It's called The Land of Ice and Fire. It's amazing. What was so interesting about this plant and something they do a lot throughout Iceland is look at how the geothermal waste products or byproducts can be used as input to other industrial processes. So this company, their stated goal beyond producing energy is to maximize the utilization of geothermal fluids. And they have all of these products that are coming out of this, which look like hot water, um, water that has like uh, different minerals that are dissolved in it. And that's unique to every different geothermal plant. CO2 is a byproduct. Um, they have different like volcanic rock that's a byproduct. So they're looking at companies that could potentially co-locate close to this geothermal plant and be using some of these resource uh, streams in order to um, grow different industries. So for HS Orca, this is an opportunity to be supporting the economy and also be getting some new revenue streams. They're you know, just using a little bit of their waste that otherwise would just be going back into nature to be supporting these new companies. Some of the companies that were there, some that like uh, grow tropical fish in Iceland using the heat. I went to this one company called Orf Genetics, which is a biotech company that grows barley in this really high tech greenhouse and they use that barley to develop plant-based growth factors, which they use for cosmetic and cell cultured meat. There was also an organization that uses that CO2 byproduct with the electricity to make methanol from all of these reclaimed materials. And then there's the one that most people have probably heard of the most, which is called the Blue Lagoon, which is an expansive spa that uses the hot water and the geothermal brine and the steam for this incredible luxury spa that now attracts, they say, 1.3 million visitors a year. So this is a you know serious tourist attraction at this point. And they use that brine and those materials to also create different beauty products. So I love this story because it's just showing the way that these different waste streams can be used to generate new things. And this company, HS Orcas, is, is actively looking for more companies to move to this resource park. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those things that we should just be seeing more and more of. I think the academic term that's often used for this is industrial symbiosis, where there's different organizations that are that are collaborating to achieve different environmental or economic or social benefits. And I, this is a term that's become more popular in the last couple of years, which in my view is a little bit of a reverse engineering of um, something that seems rather obvious to put sort of an academic language to it so we can figure out how to get more companies and more corporations to be thinking about this. Yeah, well, the old term for industrial symbiosis was eco, industrial ecology, which is similarly academic. And I think we we need to to come up with something better. I love the Blue Lagoon, of course, not to be confused with the 1980 Brooke Shields movie of the same name. But I wonder why they're why are they growing tropical fish in Iceland? They're not to eat them, I assume. So what? what's that about? Yeah, there is a couple of different organizations that are growing fish. One is growing sole, which they export to um, to North America and Europe, and that is for eating. And I guess oh. sole isn't actually, is that tropical? It's like Mediterranean sort of climate. And then they also have some that are using the, the uh, processing, they use the heat for processing fish byproducts that they then turn into a protein powder, they, these different like offcuts of fish, and they um, export that as a protein source to African markets. 
Yeah, I love love this topic. And uh, long time uh, sustainability people will remember or, or know about Kallenborg, Denmark, which was goes back to the 70s, this uh, eco-industrial park, now called Industrial Symbiosis, where they have a power plant that heats the uh, uh, the home local homes and it actually also a, a fish farm. And then the sludge from the fish farm is f f used as fertilizer and steam from the power plant is sold to a pharmaceutical manufacturer. And I believe that the uh, there's a, a wall board or a, what do you call it, drywall uh, company and some of that uh, raw material, the gypsum uh, comes for, comes from the power plant. So yeah, this is a model that I don't understand why it hasn't been replicated more. It just seems to make so much sense. Yeah, and I'll say I, I dug into the numbers here a little bit. And what I could find is that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20,000 industrial parks around the world. And that just refers to when there's clusters of industrial activities. And from that, only about 250 are examples of an eco-industrial park where they're actually using one another's outputs and they're together for these different strategic reasons, which, as you mentioned, just doesn't make sense. I mean, it, to me, it kind of reflects a lack of acknowledgement of the amount of resources that go into create something. It's almost as like that would make sense if we had um, if we didn't have planetary limits, we would be able to think of everything in that linear way. And I think increasingly thinking about these outputs as opportunities and new revenue streams will be important. Yeah, an industrial park being one of my favorite oxymorons. But let's move on to another topic, uh, very re actually fairly related to this, which is uh, actually the first of two stories we're going to talk about that are sort of bummer downer stories. Um, first one comes from over uh, Amber Rolt over at Business Green. And it's about um, a new planet tracker uh, survey research that shows that major investors just aren't leaning into biodiversity and as witnessed the shareholder proposals over the past, not just this year, but in previous years, uh, almost two thirds of the votes cast by shareholders related to biodiversity uh, voted against them or didn't vote at all. And, you know, of course, we know now it's become sort of axiomatic that, uh, over, you know, around half of global GDP comes from biodiversity. And as that becomes more uh, riskier uh, due to climate change and population growth and and just the growing consumption, uh, a lot of that's at risk. So this is one of those things. They said that uh, the findings demonstrate how major asset managers uh, and even their sustainability-focused funds still are failing to recognize the scale and risk posed to their investments from inaction on halting and reversing biodiversity loss. Um, said it found that many companies had weak policy commitments on nature or had shown no evidence of meeting their targets they had already set. What do you make of this, Sarah? Yeah, I, as you said at the top, it's not, it's a pretty sobering topic. I uh, am struck by how the conversation within sustainability is moving over to biodiversity and the way organizations are kind of fumbling to figure out what that actually means and the ways to be supporting it and how these different, even what these proposals might look like. So for example, I um, dug into this report a little bit to see what these shareholder proposals were actually saying. 
And the report breaks it into three major buckets. The first one is deforestation proposals. The second is genetic material proposals. And the third is other biodiversity proposals. And so when I look at this, I'm thinking we have a really long way to go to be even starting to talk about the conversation of biodiversity and the end, how corporations can truly be focusing on nature as part of these more holistic goals. And what I was struck by is when I started my career, it was right when climate was becoming a movement onto itself. Um, and before that time was just more a general environmental movement, then it sort of became this climate movement. And now I feel this wave coming of this new context of nature and biodiversity. And I know you've been in this game a little longer than I have. And I'm curious if you're seeing this conversation being on any sort of similar trajectory or arc that we saw with climate or before that um, environment and before that conservation. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to that, Sarah. Uh, I've said before that biodiversity is climate change 15 years ago, which is to say companies are starting to look at it and they're sort of sniffing around it. And maybe a few leadership companies, the usual suspects, as we know them, uh, have some policies. And even those policies aren't particularly grounded in any science or um, or you know science-based kinds of targets as we now know them. Uh, and then over time, due to pressure, due to real-world conditions, due to reg regulation or fear of regulation, uh, particularly outside the United States, companies started to come to this, and of course, customers and and, and all of that. And and it took, uh, you know, it, well, it's, I mean, I first started writing about this stuff in the '90s, and, um, uh, and and now we're just at the point where you know, companies are finally leaning into this and we're going to get to another story in a minute that sort of talks about uh, how well that's going. <laughs> sort of our second bummer story of the of the of this week ep week's episode, if I can telegraph that a little bit. Uh, but so I think we're getting here, hopefully, and I know it won't take 15 years to get to the point where we are. In fact, this is ramping up much more quickly than um, I'd seen. And the companies that are, are sort of getting getting it, I guess, are really replicating the playbook from climate. They're starting to uh, measure and assess, uh, understand, uh, even just survey their impacts of towards the goal of measuring them and, and, and then communicating that and then creating a plan to do something about that. And and hopefully it's a bold, audacious plan with targets and timetables that 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 reduce biodiversity loss or or better yet, in, uh, support regeneration of of uh, critical habitats, particularly those tied to their supply chain. So it, we're getting there, but it's a slog. And uh, and you know, arguably, climate is you know, pun partially intended, is sucking up so much oxygen on the on the corporate front that biodiversity is like, oh my god, we have to do something else now. Um, how do we? You know, but I think it's going to be easier for companies that do have pretty good climate playbooks. But let's talk about those. And that brings us to our third story from Matt Orsak, uh, the chief content officer at ED4S Academy. And you know, the title says everything. Companies must up their game to match net zero promises. Um, uh, he, he interviewed uh, uh, Mark Van Cleef, who's the managing director at Future Zero, which specializes in, uh, in in net zero, and it's it's pretty sobering. Um, and 
Uh, I mean, just highlighted a few few passages from here that I think uh, are particularly relevant, and it speaks to the fact that that um, you know most of what companies uh, uh, are doing, uh, what they're what they're measuring. Uh, are not part of the key metric guidance frameworks that have been put out there um, on on net zero, um, and, and that includes things from TC, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure, the Climate Action One Hundred Plus, uh, and a number of other uh, net zero asset manager owners alliance target setting proposal. And uh, you know, anyway, there's a bunch of those. I don't need to rail off all their names, but. The, Basically, companies are measuring their own things. And he said, we need to build better bridges between the real economy where capital is invested and the financial economy, the institutional investors who are allocating capital in their investment portfolios. So there's this mis mismatch between what companies uh, are, are aiming to do and what actual money flows say need to be done. Um, and and speaking directly to to one of your areas of interest, Sarah, she, he said, this is Van Cleef said that achieving a global net zero economy requires 100% carbon-free energy with 24-7 reliable power grids and complete power grid decarbonization. Wow. I mean, that's, you know, so 100% carbon-free energy, 24-7 reliable power grids and complete power grid decarbonization. Well, those are three huge movements going on. And that's before you get to transportation, industrial processes, as we were just talking about steel and concrete and chemicals, and before you get some of the other hard to abate sectors like aviation. And, you know, and so it's just not happening. And, and, and the last thing I'll say is they stress tested a number of, uh, of business models, uh, looking at the higher, high carbon intensity business models and then, um, and realizing or acknowledging that some of those Need to need to go. And this is their, his quote: "A complete business model transformation that will be required to meet net zero targets." I mean, this is this is a huge, huge mountain to climb. Yeah, absolutely. You hit on the things that really popped out to me in this article too. That first point about reporting and disclosures is such a good one, and I feel like we are in this moment where so many organizations are, are scrambling and struggling to figure out how to calculate and how to report their sustainability initiatives. And frankly, they're overwhelmed trying to keep up. I'm talking to a lot of these companies that are just trying to figure out how you can report and how you can do things in different you know formats for different reporting and for different suppliers. And, and this is um, a reminder that ultimately that reporting and disclosures is not an accounting exercise that we are really aiming to reduce emissions. And one thing that was pointed out the, that um, that two thirds of the best in class metrics for net zeros are not currently in today's key guidance framework, which is problematic, especially when we're still trying to to coalesce around reporting guidelines that work and, and um, corporations are already on their heels. And that second point about transforming business models is truly radical to be saying that all of these organizations fundamentally need to be changing what their products are in order to be reaching net zero principles, or maybe not what their products are, but how they're getting there, that we're needing to we're needing to really transform organizations and what they're doing in order to get to where we're going. And so 
I think so much of the time when we're looking at corporations, the work that they're doing is on the margins, how they can be shaving off this percentage of emissions from this sector. And here Van Cleef is saying something that is unpopular, but he's saying it very loud that what we really need is a transformational shift. So Sarah, continuing on the theme of decarbonization and electrification that we've been talking about, you've been looking into some less obvious parts of that and recently focused on the world of metals and one particular company. Uh, tell us about Boston Metal. Yeah. So Joel, as you know, one of my perennial interests um, is pathways to decarbonizing industry. So last week I had a chat with Adam Rauerdink, who is the SVP of business development at Boston Metals to talk about one huge challenge here, which is how to decarbonize steel. Yeah, I know this is something you've been thinking about for a while. And you wrote in the uh, 2023 State of Green Business Report, uh, a trend about industrial emissions, or maybe that was last year, I can't remember which one, but I know you've been writing about this for a while. And steel is a pretty energy and emissions intensive business. Uh, how big of a factor is that? Yes, uh, steel is is responsible for somewhere in the neighborhood of about 8% of all emissions globally. I asked Adam to size up the scale of the problem. So here's Adam. So there's 2 billion tons of steel, you know, consumed every year, roughly. That's the Eiffel Tower about 250,000 times every year. Uh, of that, globally, 30% is recycled steel. So, you know, using electricity to remelt chopped up cars and appliances and cast new units or fresh units of steel. Uh, the other 70% is really where the emissions come from. And that's the, the blast furnace, the basic oxygen furnace, what they call an integrated steel mill. So that's the that's the portion where the bulk of the emissions come from. It's about a billion and a half tons each year um, globally, huge chunks of it in uh, certainly in China, which is the biggest steel market, but then it's it's a global commodity. So you have blast furnaces and BOFs really everywhere in the world. But that's the that's the challenge in front of us is what's going to take the place of that of that incumbent technology. So what do we do about that? What are some of the technology pathways that could reduce those emissions? Broadly speaking, there's four basic categories of how we could be uh, reducing the emissions in steel. The first is to increase recycling. So today, about 30% of the steel market, it comes from recycled materials. And forecasts say that that could get up to maybe 40 or 50%. But this pathway will always be limited, both in quantity and quality. There's just no way that we can get to 100% of our steel demand just from recycled materials. And the quality issue is we are increasingly mixing steel with other alloys, which makes it more difficult to recycle. For example, EVs now mix steel for uh, with other alloys for the actual casing of the car. So that'll be tricky to re recycle in the future. Another pathway is to use green hydrogen. The idea here would be to make green hydrogen through electrolysis and then using that hydrogen to convert iron to liquid iron. So essentially, instead of using coal for this process, you would be using hydrogen. And the complication here is that 
our resource for clean hydrogen is pretty small and there are is a lot of competition for that small resource we have there's a lot of different players in industry that want access to that green hydrogen that don't have other ways to decarbonize this could also be used with other biofuels other sort of dropped in biofuels but green hydrogen is the one that you hear the most about the third bucket is carbon capture storage and utilization and this isn't a bad idea for reducing emissions from steel in the short term, but by definition, it's always going to be an add-on. It's always going to be an additional cost to a facility. And also the efficacy can be iffy. Like it's we, we can't really be sure if everything's actually being captured and it's still problematic to be using coal for a variety of reasons, but that could theoretically make some of the emissions less intense. And then the final solution is electrification. And this is the one that Boston Metal uses, and it's really just using electricity to do that, that smelting process. So Boston Metal uses a method it calls molten oxide electrolysis, and what it is doing is using electricity uh, to do electrolysis on the iron. So the inputs are electricity and iron, and then it turns that iron into molten iron, and then the byproduct would be oxygen. So... Personally, I really like the solution. As you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the electrify everything movement and electrification truly is critical to decarbonization. And the reason I like Boston Metal and these approaches is because it shows that electricity can be meeting the needs for these really high heat industrial applications, which in the past has been one of the barriers in order to electrify some of these more intense processes. Yeah. It's still sounds really energy intensive. I'm looking at a department, a U.S. Department of Energy document called Energy in the Hydrogen Economy, and they say that making hydrogen from water by electrolysis is one of the worst energy intensive ways. That's a terrible grammar. This is a quote, one of the worst energy intensive ways to produce the fuel. So where is the energy going to come from? Yeah, you are hitting on a very good point. And what you're just talking about with the electrolysis of water for hydrogen, that is um, also a reason why electrification, straight electrification of steel may be a good idea, because instead of using that electrolysis to do the water and then make hydrogen and then use the hydrogen for the steel, what if we just connected the electricity directly to the processing of the steel aspect? But all of these processes are incredibly energy intensive. And we are at this moment where we're looking to electrify a range of things. And the only way that will really reduce emissions is if that electricity is coming from clean resources. So what's facing steel right now and all of these other energy intensive electrified industries that are coming is the same thing across the clean energy industry where we are having supply chain constraints, there's challenges with interconnections. So I asked Adam about this too, and he pointed out that these different demands for clean energy could really be shaping the future of where steel plants are located. Here's Adam. Historically, the analogy we tell people typically, historically you built a coal or a steel mill next to a coal mine, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, elsewhere, and now you're gonna be building them where you have the power. So that's going to be, you know, very early in the project development, getting their local utility or the local large scale developers involved in the process to figure out exactly where you're going to be putting these projects. Do you have existing interconnection capacity? Do you not? What's the grid mix? Every all those other associated questions. That's something steelmakers historically really didn't have to deal with. 
They were good at getting barges of coal or rail cars of coal to the project site. Now it's going to be thinking about, you know, how do you get that electricity? Yeah, so you're, you are looking at co-locating with clean energy plants? For sure. Or, you know, having on grids that are hydro or nuclear based, you know, Quebec, our first project's in a state in Brazil where it's 100% clean power in the whole state, Minas um, mostly because of hydro. Um, parts of Scandinavia, you're seeing some early green steel projects because of hydro. Uh, and then other regions where you just have huge renewable potential, uh, you know, something like Australia, where most of the iron ore that's traded about 60% comes from Australia. You also have huge, you know, renewable potential there. So there you can think about co-locating the two and having clean power next to your, next to your iron ore. Boston Metal is an 11-year-old company founded in 2012. Why are we talking about this today? Yeah, well, one reason why I was talking to Adam is because Boston Metal recently got another round of funding, which is very exciting for them as an organization. But why I'm so interested uh, about it right now is two reasons. First, the federal government just came out with new guidelines for their buy clean principles. And these are the principles that the Biden administration is creating to um, inform the federal government to procure clean. And the federal government is the largest procurer of many of these materials. So they're wanting to create a market for these cleaner materials. And they're launching a six-month pilot project that include rules on buying um, uh, steel that has lowered embodied emissions. So I was just interested in knowing where we are right now with the decarbonization of steel. And the second reason is because I'm just always on a crusade to try to get corporations to sign more procurement deals with low carbon materials to signal that the market is there. Like that is a huge missing part. We need organizations to be moving away from just doing clean energy procurements, which is really a drop in solution for electricity, to be thinking, how can I be using lower carbon materials across the operations? So I love learning about these pathways and to just understand what the journey looks like to get there from here. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. Sarah Golden has one. Uh, they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to Sarah Golden for sitting in this week. And Heather and I will be back next week from Circularity 23 in Seattle with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time.